from the sports of the SecondCity.com studios, it's the Second Winded Podcast. Now, here's your host, Brad Robinson. Thank you, Bass, and welcome in to the Second Winded Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Robinson. We've got a lot on tap this week, as we do every week. We're going to talk to John Gregory. He's a reporter for the Illinois Radio Network. He does sports for Rivet Radio. He's our man in the press box at the Blackhawks games. And if you're a Hawks fan and you don't know who John Gregory is, we're going to introduce you to him. He's got some great stuff as we get you ready for the Blackhawks Western Conference Finals matchup against the Anaheim Ducks. We're also going to talk a little bit about the Cubs. Uh, some word that the Cubs and Mets have talked a number of times about a trade that would bring a pitcher to Chicago and send one of those good young hitting shortstops to New York. I've got some thoughts on that. But first, the Bulls failed to put the dagger in LeBron James when they had the chance. The Bulls lose Game 4 in Chicago. They lose Game 5 in Cleveland. But it's Game 4 that was really what turned this series around. The Bulls had a 9-point lead in the second half. They had the Cavs on the ropes. And they let them go. Now, you can talk all you want about officiating. Cavs coach David Blatt tried to call a timeout when he didn't have any left. That should have resulted in a technical foul. It didn't. The referees say they didn't see it. After that, the Cavs had .8 seconds left to take a final shot. The officials went back to the video board to take a look at how much time should be allowed on that final play, and that gave the Cavs an opportunity to essentially have a timeout when they had none left. And during that timeout, LeBron James talked his coach out of having James inbound the ball, which would have taken him out of consideration for the final shot that won game four. Both of those things obviously played a big role in the outcome of that game. But by no means was it the deciding factor. Again, the Bulls had a big lead at home late in the second half, and they blew it. The Bulls failed to double-team the greatest player on earth when the Cavs had one shot to win the game. Now, Tom Thibodeau said the reason he didn't want to double-team LeBron was because he wanted to make the inbound pass more difficult. I understand that. But it seems to me that you could have somebody on the inbound pass and still have LeBron James doubled up and force somebody else to take that shot. I don't care if it's Kyrie Irving. I don't care if it's J.R. Smith. Anybody but LeBron James should be taking that shot, and the Bulls did not make sure that happened. You only get one chance in the NBA to really get the best player in the world on the ropes and to put him down. More times than not, the league is superstar-driven, and the best player on the floor is going to win the series. More times than not, the best player in the world is going to win the championship. Now, that hasn't happened every time with James. He's faced some tough competition with the Spurs. But for the Bulls to be on the verge of taking a 3-1 series lead and continue to hold on to home court advantage, they played poorly down the stretch. James hit the game winner. From that moment on, you had to have known series over. 
Now, the Bulls had a chance in Game 5. They played Game 5 pretty tight in Cleveland, a difficult game. But they're without Paul Gasol. And that brings me to another issue in, in Game 5 is the ejection of Taj Gibson, which, in my opinion, was completely outrageous. Gibson, with his leg tied up, throws a kick. There's no question there should have been consequences. There should have been at least a technical foul. But to eject him, after the officials were able to go back and review the video and see that there was an instigator and it wasn't Gibson and still eject him from the game when the Bulls are already shorthanded at the position with Pau Gasol out due to injury, a poor decision. A poor decision by the NBA officials. But that's nothing new. Listen, when you're playing a guy like LeBron James, you have to believe that the officials are going to be giving the benefit of the doubt to the guys wearing the same laundry as James. That's been the case for years. And as Bulls fans, we don't have a right to complain about that. We don't have a right to play the woe is me card, this is fixed. We were the benefactors of the same kind of officiating throughout the entire Jordan era. When you look up at the United Center and you see those six banners, now there's no question the Bulls earned those. There's no question the Bulls were the best team year in and year out. But still, Jordan got the calls that other players didn't. Just like LeBron gets the calls that other players don't, just like Kobe got the calls that other players don't. It's the way the league works. So when you go into this series, you have to expect that you're not just playing five-on-five five out there. That's the way it goes. And that's why it's all the more important to not let a game slip through your fingers when you're in a situation like you are, when you're in the second round of the playoffs against the stiffest competition in the conference. You know what happens when you blow a game, when you give a game away against a player of LeBron James's caliber? You lose a series. Plain and simple. All right, let's switch over to some hockey talk. The Blackhawks are moving on to the Western Conference Finals for the fifth time in seven years. And our guest this week is a reporter covering the political beat for the Illinois Radio Network. He also does sports for Rivet Radio. And he's our man in the press box at Blackhawks Games for IRN. You can find him on Twitter at John Gregory X. It's John Gregory. John, how you doing? Very good, Brad. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for uh, giving us your time. The Wild looked a little scary coming into the series with the Blackhawks, but the Hawks really stepped up and uh, probably played their best hockey of the year. It was a series that most people pegged, me included, as the really the scariest matchup uh, that was possible in these playoffs. Uh, no Kings this time around. You had other teams like the Blues that the Hawks have seemed to handily beat before in the playoffs. And the Wild seemed kind of poised with that third year coming in, facing the Hawks, finally at full strength, because last year the Wild were much improved than they were in 2013, but had lost their goalie. This time they're coming in, one of the hottest teams in the NHL, and just kind of laid an egg four games. They were four tough games for the most part, but I think everyone was kind of disappointed after predictions of maybe Wild taking in seven or at least Blackhawks being taken to the limit that that ended so quickly. Well, what we've seen is nothing cools down a hot goaltender like uh, like the Blackhawks offense, right? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, any goaltender playing at his best can't really uh, seem to keep at that level when you play Patrick Kane in the playoffs. This guy just comes through. It's it's showtime, like he always says. He just comes through in those big series. And any worries about that collarbone lingering or the fact that he may have come back too soon? I uh, well, I'm not hearing them anymore. And who would who would even ask at this point? Michael Roosevelt went down. He's he's lost for the rest of the playoffs, and it doesn't seem like a huge loss because he really struggled kind of all season long. But right before he got injured, the last you know four or five games or so that he played, he was starting to play his best hockey. He was actually looking like a, a serviceable defenseman for the first time all year. Well, and you have to be worried about the Hawks' depth at defenseman because once you get past Jalmerson, uh, Seabrook, and Keith, you know – those are three of the best in the NHL if you're talking about a top three defenseman. And Roosevelt was that fourth. It was a long drop-off between third and fourth, but he was that fourth. And now you have to put in Runblad, who, you know, he's pretty good offensively for a defenseman. I'd be nervous about giving him big minutes, and that means leaning on Duncan Keith even more than they already do. It seems like the guy never leaves the ice, but he's going to have to put up some big minutes in these playoffs because I'm guessing um, unless they start digging down or some defenseman out of those uh, beyond those top three really starts playing well I don't think Q's going to trust them with big time minutes well and when it comes to Keith you know maybe it's because we're used to the aesthetics of what Keith brings playing defense Uh, he's always so good and so consistent and we're used to that kind of performance out of him and maybe it's the the heavy minute workload but it seems to me that maybe Nicholas Jalmerson has been the Blackhawks best defenseman during this run he's always been underrated uh, because Keith, as you said, he's the Iron Man. He gets all the minutes. Seabrook, besides being another great defenseman, seems to have a uncanny knack to hit the big-time slap shots in overtime. So I believe he has something like three or four overtime win- playoff goals in his career, and that's you know, that's pretty crazy. But Jalmerson, you're right. He always seems to get lost in that shuffle. Or he, he's the third out of out of three. He's in a, the George to their John and Paul, if you will, on the defenseman side. But he certainly plays solid, and, and they need him to step up his play even more with the defenseman ranks thinned out a bit as they are with Roosevelt gone. Again, I always thought if you're if you're putting Jalmerson three, Roosevelt's a big drop off to four. But he's certainly an improvement over Runblad or any other guy they may come off. They may have him come off the bench uh, because those guys just haven't had the ice time. John, one of the really good moves that, that Joel Quinville made during this playoff run is finally pulling the plug on Chris Versteeg in favor of uh, Tavo Teravainen. And, uh, you know, Teravainen's still young, he's still raw, but he adds a dimension of speed and uh, and puck handling ability that Versteeg simply can't provide anymore. No, you're right, and uh, Versteeg was on that, he's designated for that fifth line in the practice, uh, in the latest practices down there with Nordstrom and Carcillo, the guys you'd expect to be on that fifth line heading into that series. And what I think's really helped Tara Vinen is that the Hawks' depth has gotten to a point where they bump Patrick Sharp down to the third line. And I think matching up Tara Vinen with guys like Patrick Sharp and Vermette has really helped him come into his own in these playoffs. And I think 
his performance here has solidified he's not going anywhere. He's staying at least at the third line level heading into next year and clearly being one of the Hawks' top prospects over the past few years. You'd expect him to be in that lineup for years and years to come, but this was finally the moment. I believe in the in the Wild Series especially, he solidified his spot in the lineup. You know, Corey Crawford is providing one of the real great stories of the NHL playoffs. Uh, struggled in the first round, got pulled, um, but he's he's got the pedigree. He's got the hardware in his career. He's done it before. Uh, he really bounced back nicely against the Wild, and I'm I'm expecting more of the same going forward. Well, and, and, and you need to expect more because one of my big keys for this series is that Corey Crawford has to come through. And I feel like some some people in the national media, the people who haven't watched this team for year, no, for years as Corey has been the primary netminder, that they're doubting Crawford because they're looking at his stats and because of that game two against the Predators, his stats are completely skewed. You don't want to trust his goals against average and save percentage. Right now it's you know, a uh, 924 save percentage and a uh, 2.27 uh, goals against average. Not good numbers for a playoff run, but it's just skewed by that game too. But they would absolutely need him to deliver, and the big reason is, is the Corey on the other side of the ice, Corey Perry of the Ducks. He's the only player in these playoffs you could say is hotter than Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves because he leads the NHL in this postseason with 15 points. Both he and Kane have seven goals, but uh, Perry with a few more assists. And that's the sort of production, um, along with several other Ducks players, because the Ducks have several players near the top in points in this postseason. That's the sort of stuff that says Crawford has to deliver. He needs to be at his very best. And while... There is plenty to defend with him. You can say that he's been there before. He's made deep postseason runs. In that Kings series, he did let through some goals that ended up costing the Blackhawks in the end. And he needs to be at the best like he was against the Wild, not exactly the, you know, just good Corey Crawford that he was against the Kings and in several other series. He needs to be the great Corey Crawford that uh, he showed in this last series. Well, and especially with a thinned out defensive unit now with, uh, with Roosevelt gone, uh, he's going to have to stand on his head at, at least a couple of times during the course of this series. If the Blackhawks are going to get back to the finals. Yes, but it, no, he's, he's done this before. If you look at the, the three games the Ducks and the Blackhawks played in the, in the regular season. Uh, one of them, just a wash, and actually the one that the Ducks won was when Scott Darling was in goal, and the Ducks were also playing their backup, John Gibson. So just call that a wash. The other two, in both of those games, uh, the Ducks had far fewer shots than the Hawks and only got in one goal in both of the games. Both of the games, uh, you know, the second and third games they played, were 4-1 uh, wins on, in favor of the Hawks. Those are the sort of performances that they're going to need from Crawford. Uh, and hopefully they can re- the defensemen can help him out by doing as they did in those two games and limiting the, the shots the Ducks take. Now the, now, the Ducks don't put a ton of shots on net, uh, not like the Hawks, uh, but if they can limit that, those chances at all, that'll help out Crawford, and they've done it before. And the Hawks 
we know how deep they are offensively, but the Ducks are no slouches either. I mean, they've got uh, Ryan Getzlaff and Corey Perry and Ryan Kessler. I mean, they, they've got some serious firepower on their offense. Oh, like I said, Corey Perry is you know, the only player that you can say is hotter than Patrick Kane. I mean, certainly if the Ducks made it past the Blackhawks, you'd be looking at him as your playoff MVP, uh, you know, your Conn Smythe winner. But while while they certainly have firepower, that should not be discounted. As I said again, they have several players near the top in postseason, in, in postseason points with Corey Perry leading the NHL. Uh, and you brought up Ryan Kessler. I'm sure he might have a little bit of motivation if Hawks fans can remember, he was on those Canucks squads oh, yeah. from 2009 to 2011 that the Hawks played repeatedly. And I don't know if his offensive production is going to be limited at all because I'm guessing uh, Bruce Bordreau has already told him to you know just attach yourself to Jonathan Taves for the entire, ser- entire series to Ryan Kessler. I heard one writer suggest that Kessler may as well be sitting at the Hawks' lunch table next to Taves considering how close he's probably going to have to be on him. I don't know if that if that sort of hovering is going to limit his offensive production, but even if it did, if Corey Perry isn't stopped, the Hawks are going to have big problems. Well, we talked about the kind of Jekyll and Hyde nature of Corey Crawford, but you know, Ducks goalie Frederick Anderson, he's had a nice uh, nice playoff streak here for for the last few weeks, but he's a guy that the Blackhawks can can get to. He uh, during the regular season didn't have overwhelming numbers or anything like that. The the Ducks weren't uh, skating by on his strength, so you know, the Blackhawks may have an opportunity here to uh, to get a goalie who maybe isn't up to par with the rest of his team. Right. If you look at Anderson's playoff numbers, uh, you know they're they're better they're better than Crawford. Uh, you know, partially because Anderson hasn't had didn't have any game two mishap like Crawford did. But the big difference is the Ducks haven't Ducks and Anderson haven't faced a team that puts as many shots on the net as the Hawks do. There's been some comparison. Uh, you know, by Ducks fans saying, oh, the Hawks are just like the Calgary Flames. The Hawks are absolutely nothing like the Calgary Flames, other than, like the Flames, they are lighter than the Ducks. The Ducks being this, you know, you're going to hear a lot about the size of the Ducks and how that plays in the series. The big difference, the Hawks put a lot of shots on net. If you look back at the regular season stats, the Hawks put nearly 34 shots per game on, on goal. That was top in the NHL. The Ducks are in the middle of the pack, 30 shots uh, per game, while the Flames were 27.5. That was 28th in the league. The Edmonton Oilers put more shots on goal than the Flames did. And that goes a long way to explaining why the Ducks were able to roll over the Flames in that second-round series. The Jets were also down in the 20s, so it's... It's completely night and day for what Anderson has to face with the Blackhawks compared to what he's gone through in the first two rounds. So as we're recording this, Game 7 is going on between Washington and the Rangers. Uh, If the Hawks, looking forward, if the Hawks are able to get past the Ducks and go back to the finals, who in the East uh, scares you the most? Man, I would ha- you have to go with the Rangers because you always have to go with the shutdown goalie, and that's exactly what Henrik Lundqvist is. Uh, and while the Capitals have you know, plenty of firepower on their own, I, I think in the playoffs you always go with which goaltender 
is the hardest to beat. And there's no question that is Henrik Lundqvist. He's absolutely one of the best in the NHL. And especially, you never want to face a team that came back from a deficit like the Rangers have and get them on a run. Because, as we saw with the Blackhawks in 2013, you come down from a 3-1 deficit, you kind of roll after that. And combine that with a big-time goalie like Lundqvist, that would be the matchup I don't think the Hawks want. Although, in terms of hockey history, that's the exact matchup you want. Well, and the Rangers are, you know, like the Hawks. They, you know, they know how to win in the postseason. They, they, uh, they didn't win the cup last year, but they were in the finals. They've, they've been through this before, so they bring a little bit of uh, veteran savvy to the uh, to the party as well. Yeah, don't get, don't discount that uh, that kind of passion and drive when you've fallen short. Now the Blackhawks have that again because, as you'd hear from any guy in the locker room. Uh, you know, if they put away that 2013 Stanley Cup victory, they want to say on day one of the of the next season. But once you get far into the playoffs and you fall short again, it doesn't matter if you won in the past. You want it just as badly, if not more. And for the Rangers, that fan base, and getting to getting all the way to the finals and basically getting embarrassed by the Kings last year, you have to believe they've got some drive and passion to get there. And if Lundqvist is playing anywhere near his best that's a, a troublesome matchup for any team yeah new york chicago original six stanley cup final sounds pretty appealing doesn't it oh i like the sound of that <laughs> all right he's john gregory he's a reporter for illinois radio network he does sports for rivet radio you can find him on twitter at john gregory x john great stuff we'll do it again thanks so much for uh, joining us today all right thank you brad all right, before we close shop for the week, I wanted to address the Cubs-Mets trade rumors. Now, these rumors have been going back a long, long way. They make sense. The Cubs have what the Mets need. They've got a lot of hitting shortstop talent. The Mets have what the Cubs need. They've built their organization around strong pitching. And this rumor was all over the offseason with uh, thoughts that maybe Starlin Castro would be involved in, in a deal for possibly Noah Syndergaard or Matt Harvey or Zach Wheeler or Jacob deGrom. Nothing ever came of it. The rumors started again this week when Jed Hoyer spoke to the media before Monday's game against the Mets, and this is what he said. I'm quoting here. We haven't made a deal yet, but there's been matches that made sense, and I'm sure we'll talk to the team in the future. I guess when you factor in the hitting and the pitching, I guess people think it's unusual, but it'll happen at some point. Now, a lot's been made out of that last part, the it'll happen at some point. By no means is Hoyer saying that a blockbuster deal is going to happen at some point. There's a lot of areas where the Cubs and Mets uh, meet up quite nicely for a trade. But I don't see the Mets dealing one of their top arms to the Cubs uh, unless someone like Addison Russell is involved. Now, the Mets are built on pitching. We've seen their offense this week, and granted, they've got some uh, very serious injuries going on. Uh, there's no David Wright. Travis D'Arnaud is gone. Uh, so the Mets are dealing with a shortage of bats at the moment, but even with those guys in the lineup, the Mets are a team that is going to go as far as their pitching takes them. And with the start they've had, I don't see them dealing one of those arms, not yet anyway, 
and not unless they get a king's ransom in return. If I'm the Cubs, I'm not dealing Addison Russell, and at this point, while I would have considered dealing Starlin Castro in the offseason, I'm not dealing him now either. Because Javier Baez and Arizmendi Alcantara have yet to show that they can be a factor at the major league level. And until at least one of those guys is able to establish themselves as an everyday big leaguer, the Cubs need Castro, especially the way he's playing this year. He's playing the best ball of his career. His defense is looking better. There's still the occasional lapse, but for the most part, he's playing the best shortstop of just about anybody in the National League and probably a top five in all of baseball. So unless you're getting a huge return for Castro, you really cannot deal him at this point, especially considering that the Cubs have started strong and they consider themselves a factor throughout the course of the season. I'd love to get a Noah Syndergaard. That's not going to happen. Zach Wheeler or Jacob deGrom are, are more realistic trade targets from the Mets' standpoint, and they're not going to get one of the Cubs' starting middle infielders for that. Now, if Javier Baez is able to rebound, perhaps Baez can bring you quite a bit in return. Cole Hamels is still an option out there, but these Mets pitchers are young and very good. So it's something to keep an eye on. Not to mention, uh, Jed Hoyer worked with Paul DePodesta, who's the director of scouting, and player development for the Mets, uh, they work together in San Diego. So they're familiar with each other. There's a relationship there. It would make sense that these two teams would meet up on a deal at some point. That doesn't mean it's going to be a blockbuster that brings the Cubs a top-of-the-rotation arm and brings the Mets a starting shortstop. And that'll do it for this week of the Second Winded Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Robinson. Special thanks to John Gregory. You can find him on Twitter, at John Gregory X. He brought excellent knowledge uh, when it comes to the Blackhawks and gave us a nice preview on the Hawks and Ducks upcoming series in the Western Conference Finals. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, check out sportsofthesecondcity.com for daily or near-daily writings on all of Chicago's pro sports teams. Thanks for listening. So long.